What is up, my friends? Welcome back to another episode of the Coworking Weekly Show. As always, I'm your host, Alex Holman, and today we're picking up where I left off back in episode 28, where I spent a little bit of time touching on some of the considerations that I've had in looking for the new space for Indie Hall and, and what you could be thinking about if you're looking for your first space, additional space, new space to move into for your coworking community. But today I'm going to go a little bit deeper. I got to sit down with my good friend, Adam Tedderis. You know him very well if you've been listening to the show for a while. Adam is my right-hand man here at the hall. And Adam helped me unpack a lot of what's been going on over the last year, coming over a year at this point. We've been working really, really hard at making sure that we're in a great position to move Indy Hall into a new home. And as I sit here and record, we'll be moving within the next 30 days, which sounds completely insane to to hear coming out of my own lips to know that in 30 days, we're going to be in a new home. Uh, And this is a two-part episode. So in the first part, we're going to be doing a little bit of a recap and go just a little bit deeper into some of those themes of how we actually looked for space, how we found potential spaces, who we talked to, what were the things that we considered, what are the options we weighed, what went really well, what didn't go well, what obstacles did we run into, and how I managed all of that. And then we get into the more strategic side of things, most specifically, how I make sure I don't lose my head. Right, There's a lot going on here. There's a lot of things to consider. It's really easy to get bogged down, stressed out, and to lose sight of the important stuff. But I make it my number one job to keep my eyes on the prize, and I talk a whole bunch about how I actually make that happen. So so let's dive into this episode. I know there's a lot that you can learn from what I've been going through, and I hope you're able to apply it in your own search. Enjoy. Alex, about a year ago, almost a year ago, Coming up on a year ago. You and I had a conversation on the mics, like we're doing right now, about something really big. <laughs> something, that's putting it lightly, I feel like. You know what, I think it was my birthday week, because we talked about birthdays. Oh yeah, that's right, that's so, right. In so fact, uh, two months from now, it will be one year since that conversation. Yeah, and the news that you and I were sharing with everyone, you and I had it, and our team had it, and Indy Hall had it, but the news that you and I were sharing was that we would be moving. Indy Hall would be moving. On the eve of our 10th anniversary, Indy Hall gets a new home. <laughs> yeah. Like you do. You know, yeah. new, you know new, new haircut, new uh, set of sneakers, or like a whole new you know, place to call home. Yeah, I've been feeling like it's kind of like the hermit crab thing. Like eventually a hermit crab leaves its <laughs> shell and goes into a different shell. It's just this is like 300 hermit crabs that live in one giant shell. That's a uh, yeah, and this shell is a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> so I feel like, it, given that, it is a lot of work. I, f- I, I think it's maybe time for us to talk about what's happened since the time we first talked about it and what's happening right now, where we are right now. Oh, so much. And, and, and there's so much that we could cover in so many terms. Uh, I mean, since that conversation, which we released in, in two parts back in September and then you know, promptly followed up with another episode in January. Promptly. Uh, promptly. Mm-hmm. Emphasis on promptly. At that point, we didn't know where we were moving to. No. And we didn't really even have any solid prospects. We were working with some folks. Mm-hmm. Um, we're still navigating sort of the, the terrain of real estate and real estate agents and brokers and developers. And it's like trying to figure out what our options were. Mm-hmm. And spent a lot of the last several months doing that. At the end of last year, we sort of hit a a break point in the timeline where we had started exploring possibilities of 
owning a building. That's right. And we can talk more about what we've ex- what we want to explore there, why that's even interesting, because I don't think it's the reasons that people typically think of. But when we passed the new year, essentially, and still had not found a location, let alone, you know, at, at that point, if you've got a settle on a deal, you've got to lock down financing, you've got to go through closing. Like that's a three month process in and of itself before you can even start renovation. Mm -hmm. And realistically, the odds were that we weren't going to find someplace that was move in ready in our price point. So serious renovations were going to be necessary. We were starting to put our timeline at risk. We're on a, we are on a timeline. I feel like that is significant to mention from the day that you first told me about this to when we first recorded, to our follow-up, to right now, we're on a timeline. You know, and it's funny that we are on a timeline because so many times when I'm working with folks that are starting a brand new co-working space, they invent a timeline. We need to be open by three months from now. And I always ask them why. And the number almost invariably is completely made up. Mm. And sometimes there's value in creating a constraint and saying we want to be, you know, accomplish a thing by this time. Yeah, I get it. Uh, I totally get it. But it also, I think it's in that case, a lot of times where people start making silly mistakes, they get distracted by the space needs to be open by that time, even if there's nobody there other than themselves pressing to hit that deadline. We have some outside constraints that are very real in this case. Uh, The biggest one is that our our current location, our lease expires on August 31st, 2016. So we got to be out, which means that the new space needs to be delivered before that, leaving us enough time to navigate a transition, to move in, to get it ready, and to tidy up behind us and and have the space ready to hand over to our landlord uh, and have them do with it what they will. Yeah. When we first talked, I remember the theme of it kind of being a lot of uncertainty and how you take action into uncertainty and how you communicate with an entire community of people. You know, here's what we know and here's what we don't and here's how we're going to bridge the gap between those two things. That's right. So I wonder if maybe we can start today by responding to some of the uncertainty. What, what do we know now for sure that we definitely did not when we first started talking about this? Well, the big one and the big news that I was able to share admittedly kind of vaguely in the public back in the spring, but with our own community uh, back in April, I believe it was. I think so. uh, Is that we signed a lease at 399 Market Street, which for those of you who are unfamiliar with Philadelphia, which I imagine is many of you, is a big deal. And the reason it's a big deal is because one of the constraints that we did assign ourselves rather than a timeline was a location and we were really trying hard to stay in old city of philadelphia the neighborhood that we were born in we were raised in um this is sort of like hometown and we could have and we discussed what it would be like to leave old city uh, a neighborhood that is undeniably molded who we are and i believe we've molded what it is as well in a contemporary sense and it's not that I was against moving, and I think we could have potentially moved, but on a timeline, that's more work. You know, mm-hmm. the, a move around the corner versus a move across town when you've got hundreds of people to coordinate uh, is, is a stickier situation. So there's that component. And the other part, and frankly, this is emotional, and I'll, I'll caveat that, and it's romantic, and I'll caveat that because it's a terrible place to be making decisions from. It's a place to acknowledge. Yeah. It's a place to, to work in and understand the romance, but it's a terrible place to make business decisions is – If we were going to leave Old City, I wanted to be because we decided to leave Old City, not because my landlord was an asshole. Yeah. (laughs) And those terms matter uh, to me. Yeah. And I would have dealt with it. I would have found a way around it. But 
at the end of the day, I went home and every person that I spoke to about what we were looking for, and they said, well, well, what about outside of Old City? And I kept saying the same thing, which is, I want to feel confident that I exhausted the options in Old City before we seriously pursue other neighborhoods. I was looking at stuff in other parts of the city. Sure. But it was so important to our DNA, to our culture. And in addition to that, there's some tactical components where if you change neighborhoods far enough, you're going to lose some people. That's kind of an inevitability, and I had to be prepared for that. At the same time, we potentially gain some people that don't want to come to Old City. That could balance itself out. But those are all unknowns. Whereas being able to stay in Old City already has tons of advantages, also, we have an emotional play to the neighborhood, businesses that our members support and frequent. The Business Improvement District here in Old City, the Old City District, very motivated to help us stay in the neighborhood. Uh, one of the things that we learned somewhere in the process was uh, they, they brought in some urban planners mm. to help us get an idea of how we might survey the impact of our community. and. Yeah. That's something that I'd still like to do, although it, was no, it wasn't required. It didn't really give us a tool that we needed. If sure. we found that we needed it, I would have executed on it. Um, but we got an idea of how big we are relative to the ecosystem that we're a part of. You mean actually measuring the impact of us being where we are? Yeah, if you translate, and we're kind of funny because not everyone's here full time, but they sort of, they asked us some questions and they did some rough calculations and basically told us that we're, you know, 150 to 175 full-time equivalent people impact on Old City. And that impact is commerce on uh, on foot traffic, on uh, the whole whole rubric of things that that comes down to. And when a company of 25 or 50 comes to the neighborhood, yeah. people throw a ticker tape parade. It's mm. a big deal. Yeah. When a company that big or larger leaves, it's a crater. Mm-hmm. And so realizing that, and this is the number that blew my mind, I expected that we would like show up on the radar, but I was expecting sub 1%. Yeah. I was expecting like maybe half a percent at the highest end. We represent like a little over 2%, yeah. which is, granted, a single digit, but a not insignificant single digit that I am most impressed by, I'm most proud of, because we've created that without any outside resources, yeah. entirely bootstrapped. This is by the resources of ourselves and our own community. There are incubators, accelerators, commerce building programs that funnel tons of money into neighborhoods and cities and would just, they would kill to have a 2% measured impact yeah. and don't. Yeah. So it made me very proud and also want to say, then, then I, I don't want, I personally do not want to leave a creator behind, especially not because my landlord's an asshole. Yeah, sure. And, and like everything at Indie Hall is built on our own agency, right? I feel like our entire existence is a celebration of having agency. The notion that we would leave our neighborhood on somebody else's accord. Yeah, I want to do it because we chose to do it, not because somebody else told us that we had to. And a lot of people have sort of mistaken what's been going on here as traditional, you know, gentrification and, you know, see a twist of irony and the fact that, you know, a neighborhood that we helped build up would then push us out because that is the traditional, you know, cycle. And and trust me, that happens and I've seen it happen. It happened to our neighbors, Lake Blue, around the corner. Mm -hmm. We've seen it happen to businesses and it's frustrating. It's a very frustrating cycle. This ain't that. Yeah. And we don't need to get into the details of that, but this is pure, greedy, crazy landlord, period. 
And that's all I need to say about that. Yeah. Yeah. So what we know for sure is we are staying in Old City. We know that we got an address. We have an address. We got a landlord. We have a landlord. We're not buying. We're renting. That's correct. Uh, other things, you know, that come to mind, people, this is maybe the question that I get all of the time. So you're moving to a bigger space, huh? Yeah, I get that question a lot too. Uh, So when someone asks you that question, I'm curious how you respond. Yeah. So my answer has been, you know, not that much bigger. Uh, you know, when I look at what we've done through all the stages of growth and I, I work with lots of other spaces as well. So I get a sense of what gains you get from scale and there are diminishing returns once you break a certain point and around the size that we are is where we start seeing those diminishing returns. So growth for growth's sake, not really in the cards. Now this new space does give us some serious advantages while it's only around a thousand square feet more than than we currently had. So we're still in and around that 10,000 square foot mark. Mm -hmm. I've been saying since the very beginning, not all square feet are equal, which Mm -hmm. makes the math nerds go crazy pants but think about it like really really uh seriously so there's a lot of things that can be attributed attributed to square footage obviously where that square footage you know uh, where in a neighborhood where relative to parking and public transportation and other things that you want around it impacts the value but also just the layout of the room the space that we're in is this sort of if you look at it from above it's sort of an h-shaped space because we lose a couple of parts of the center of the building to uh, fire escape stairs and and uh, and an elevator shaft and those sorts of things. So it's these sort of long skinny corridors that are connected in the middle, yes. like an H, right? Yep. Two eyes right in the middle, which is got some pretty cool components to it because it creates down in the legs of the H these sort of cozier nooks. Whereas in the center, it tends to be a little more open, uh, a little more communal, a little more you know that's where the kitchen is, mm-hmm. sort of big open space downstairs is. And all that's well and good. The problem is those skinny spaces aren't always the most useful. So like our classroom space and our gallery, which we make a lot of a good use out of, yeah. can only really be used certain ways because of the width of the room. And at a certain point when you can only get, you know, eight or ten chairs across and you start going back, 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 back. Uh, an 18-foot across room has limitations. So this new space, while it's only a little more square footage because it is, A, all on one floor, which Mm -hmm. is a huge advantage we we should talk about, Um, but B, it doesn't have those nooks and crannies. We can create those nooks and crannies, but when we're thinking about design and layout, we're thinking about how do we create them in a way that they aren't permanent. Yeah. So right now the nooks and crannies are where they are and they can't ever go away. Mm-hmm. I can count the number of times where I'd say, man, if we could just move that wall five feet that way, this would be a much better experience. But we can't because that wall is made out of bricks and it's structural. Yeah. So having space that we can reconfigure, we can redesign from the ground up and design for more potential uses makes this every square foot that much more valuable. We lose a remarkable amount of square footage to the way the building that we moved into was already configured and mm-hmm. the way it's had to be configured as we've grown and evolved inside of it. So to have a blank slate and sort of take the best of what we've learned along with us and then look at the problems that have been the most painful and say, well, how do, if we get to design this from the ground up, how do we address those problems? Yeah, It starts becoming less like, you know, I think a lot of people when they design collaborative spaces and co-working spaces, uh, and I, it's a lot like 
a, a f- f- dollhouse version of the workplace. It's how we like to imagine our dream house, our dream workplace. But until you've lived in it, you've worked in it, you don't realize how wrong you can be about a lot of those things. Oh, and yeah. We've had the advantage of being wrong about some of our assumptions and learning through them. And then some things we can change and other things we can't. And there's other things that we wouldn't have tried if it weren't for the constraints. We learned how valuable those constraints were. And now we get to translate those constraints over but also make them more malleable, make yeah. them make it more like Play-Doh. Um, and so, you know, I've been thinking about the space as, in a lot of ways, as a blank canvas. Um, the amount of square feet that we have, it, it matters, but it ma- it's like the least important metric to me. Yeah. At the same time, you know, even though the math says, the math says, okay, there's more space. Uh, it wasn't until I actually sat down and did a, uh, we, we loaded a floor plan into Google SketchUp and I started dropping actual 3D models of our furniture, of our, of our IKEA desks and, and sofas and things like that. Ta- furniture we're already familiar with into the space yeah. that I was confident that the space was actually the right size. Um, it's very, very hard, even though I've got all this experience, very hard to visualize space because I, I walk over through the new space while they were still doing demolition. And moment to moment, I would go back and forth between, oh, my God, this is so much space. This feels so much bigger because it's all it's all open. And then the next breath, I'd think this is not enough space. There's no <laughs> way that this is enough. We, we, we made a mistake in the calculations. So, yeah, yeah. so no, having done the model... And granted, the model doesn't mean that's what we're going to do. It just gave me a taste of which way the wind is blowing, so to speak. Yeah. Um, are we in the right bounds? And the answer is absolutely. I, I think we should actually talk a little bit about the fact that it is one floor only. Yeah. When I first started at Indie Hall, we were one floor only. That's right. And we reached a point where we had so many people that we needed to figure out what we do. Do we curtail membership or do we expand? Do we move? There were a lot of ideas that got bandied about. It just worked out that the floor below us, the first floor, was vacating or vacant, and we were going to take it over. But that really changed our community. And we, we had to be smart about the way that we expanded to having two floors. And now we had effectively two communities. How do we make sure that those people see one another? We've done a really excellent job of that, I think. I think uh, so, too. Not to toot our own horn, but uh, I, I really think that we, we were very smart about the way that we approached that. Well, and I think, and I think to, to quantify that just a little bit, I think the biggest thing we did was acknowledge that it's going to be different. Exactly. Rather, than try and, rather than try and force there to be some sort of unification, it was like, there's going to be two different vibes. That's right. And... What if that's okay? Yeah. Like, what, like, how do we embrace that, and how do we make that a strength? Yeah. As we move into a new space now, we are only going to have one floor again. And in some ways, I think, wow, what a benefit. Everyone can see everyone. We're all going to be located on the exact same level. Line of sight should be nice to be able to see effectively anybody who's in the spot. And in another sense, I think, I wonder how we apply the fact that we had the constraint of two different spaces, of two different levels, and that made us be certain about the way that we communicate with each other, about the fluidity of the space, of making sure that we, I visit upstairs and I visit downstairs and I'm cognizant of those two separate spaces. How can we apply some of that to now just having one? Now, we don't need to think about that way. Is that something that you've thought about? Like, I, it seems like a blessing, but how do we make sure that we actually maintain our knowledge? Well, one of the interesting things is that very naturally, the upstairs and downstairs in our current location have adapted 
uh, to you know lighting differences different. to the difference in sound the yeah. amount of foot traffic and sort of naturally people identified this is a noisier this is a quieter this is a brighter this is a dimmer and people choose based yeah. on their preferences mm -hmm. so one of the things that we thought about as we were designing this space was how do we introduce zones so that people might choose them. Mm -hmm. So uh, just one sort of tactical thing on, on the lighting side, it would have been very easy to put everything all in one circuit. Uh, you know, one light switch sure turns everything on. And in fact, the electrical engineers, and this is something I've learned through this entire project is engineers and architects are often really excited about new mechanisms, new toys, new electronics, new sensors and things like that. And they wanted to, you know, put things on motion sensors and IR sensors and all this other stuff. And I was yeah, like, yeah. you know, this is a space for people who get up and move around. And I don't want to have electronics trying to guess what people's intent is. Yeah. I want people to feel in control of the space that they're in. That is a much higher priority. So let's not introduce magic like that. Magic starts feeling like guesswork. And if I don't know why that light turned on or off, I start feeling a little unsettled. Sure. So let's keep it, you know, I know what happens when I flip a light switch, the light goes on. Yeah. When I flip it off, it goes off. Yeah. If you want to have it on timers so that it automatically turns off between the hours of 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. because the odds of someone being here in those hours is very slim, but we can tell people, hey, if the lights shut off, you can override that. That's yeah. fine. But, I, you know, I, I think I was at a wedding a couple months back and I was in the bathroom of all places. And I was on one of those much too shortly timed motion sensor lights. <laughs> and so, like, I'm going to the bathroom and the light turns off for me. And I'm like, hello, hello. Oh, no. And then I realized, what do I have to do? I have to wave my arms while I'm going to the bathroom. Like, yeah. this is one of the, like... It's so demeaning and ridiculous to try and communicate with a piece of electronics that you're there yeah. when a light switch just works. So don't get too clever. Where we did apply the tools since we were running all new circuits is said, let's make sure everything can be dimmable. Yeah. Because if people want there to be a dimmable zone, I don't want there to have to be that zone is always the dark one, that one is always the bright one. What if we change it up? So yeah. I was always thinking about the zones that people were drawn to here. What are the elements of that? And making it so that any zone can be that zone, we just kind of have to choose it's going to be that way and let, yeah. and let people define it for themselves. You, you bringing up a wedding is, is poignant to me because I, I, I've been thinking a lot about our move. I'm, I'm thinking a lot about what it means to move, all of the moving pieces. It's kind of funny. When you and I sat down to talk a long time ago about us moving, there's this underlying optimism that just says, well, yeah, you're going to make shit happen. This is going to happen because what other option is there? I'm glad that optimism came across. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, you, you maintain that for as long as you need. But as we get nearer to actually doing the thing, I'm becoming more and more aware at an atomic level of how much is involved. And before I think we even get into having a conversation about how much is involved and trying to, I guess, keep your head on straight at, with, with all of that, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for asking, Adam. I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, I mean that. Yeah. Because uh, if, if I can just break down, if I can pull the curtain aside a little bit, Alex here in our community is an operator at a major level of Indy Hall in its present day. But as far as the future sense and, and all of us moving toward a new space, Alex is the person who is in charge of recon with just about every single person in the new building with contractors, with uh, developers, with architects, people who are everyone at every level 
from lighting to flooring to paint color to walls. There are so many people, there are so many people that I, I don't even know how many people there are to list them right now. Uh, you have contact with effectively all of them, and then you try to make contact between those people and you and all of us here at Indy Hall. You have so much. You are spinning more plates than a person can spin. So when I ask you, how are you? I mean, like, deep down, how are you doing this? (laughs) So, I mean, there's a couple of layers to this. Uh, And the first one is something that I'm pretty sure we talked about the last time we, we talked about this process, which is I'm most stressed out when I'm working in a vacuum. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the first couple of months of this entire arc of our of our history, where I found out from our present day landlord that we were going to be weathering a rent increase and then eventually have to move. Yeah. You know, I kept um, I kept a lot of that quiet. I kept it to myself because I didn't want information that potentially put us at risk to get out. I remember. And so dealing with that on my own was probably the most stressful part of this project which even though there have been stressful parts since that one by by a long shot yeah. right this is sort of the opposite in a way where there are things in motion and there's there's a lot to keep track of and there are timelines and there are a lot of things that are outside of my control yeah but because i can keep the dialogue open because i can work in the open psychologically i feel pretty good mm-hmm. i feel pretty good because even when things aren't good I can talk about it yeah. and I can, whether it's just to commiserate or I can problem solve with other people. Uh, and, and I've done all of the above. You know, if I w- if I felt like I was facing this on my own, I could see this like putting me in, in the loony bin, like really, really running me into the ground, being sure. really stressed out. But knowing that, you know, there are decisions to make the hardest decisions to make are the ones where I just kind of have to make a call and, you know, I was talking with with um, my my partner in my other business, Amy Amy Hoy, uh, about the decisions that she's making. You know, she she did an office renovation in the last eighteen months herself, so I've been borrowing lots of ideas and concepts from that. Things mm-hmm. that she researched and learned, working on some home renovation, and I reminded her the big difference between that and what we're doing is that every decision I make is not just a decision that I have to live with; yeah. it's that we all have to live with. Yeah. So I'm looking for making decisions. Uh, that, that's got, that's got weight. That's, there's no two ways about it. That's got weight. And the yeah. only way that that would cripple me is if I was making those decisions purely in a vacuum. Yeah. So one of the things that's really helped in the last six weeks in particular, since things have really started moving with the decision-making process with, with build out and construction is having this weekly, um, happy hour. We call it the new home happy hour on Tuesdays, on Tuesdays at the end of the day, end of our normal work day before our night owl session starts. And it's been so good to have a weekly checkpoint because up until we started doing that, what was happening was, a lot would be going on. A lot of decisions would be made. In my head, I was going, nobody really cares about this. Nobody really cares about this. I don't really need to do an update about that little thing. Like, that's a little minutia. Nobody cares. Uh, right. And then things would build up, and it had been 30 days since the last post that I did about what's going on. And I would write that because people kept asking me, I haven't heard anything in a while. What's going on? Mm-hmm. And they would be hit with this wall of text of all that minutia that I assumed they didn't care about, mm-hmm. when, in fact, people were pretty pleased to hear what was going on, how decisions are being made, uh, and in the best of cases, feel like they could be a part of that process. So I decided 
that's when things stressed me out the most. I was going to design that out of the equation. And the longest I can go without some sort of update to the community now is seven days. That's right. So every seven days, whether it's me talking just to a webcam, because we live stream this on yeah. Crowdcast, which also is nice because it means that we're recording everything for posterity, for our own reference, yeah. reference of future things, which could be really, really handy. Which, by the way, is funny how things have changed. You've always mentioned taking photos and documentation of a process like this. We have talked about your Flickr account and going through old photos of, of the first time you looked at a clubhouse, even before where we are right now and it things have changed in a way that now we're actually recording those things and live casting those things to everybody yeah and i've actually i've been watching uh, a couple of my friends use like facebook live yeah. and i'm pretty sure that over the next six to eight weeks while we're finishing up the move i'm gonna be doing that even more mm-hmm. so it'll be on the fly while i'm over at the space i can sort of you know queue up uh, our, our chat room so people know post to Facebook post to social media and let people know that I'm live streaming something straight from the space yeah. um, which is which is a pretty awesome technology to have right now and I guess my point in all this is constantly reminding myself that even though it seems like minutia those updates getting it out of my head and out just to talk through it is so therapeutic yeah and it serves a double positive purpose and that it's therapeutic for me to have the practice to talk through it. But it's also really valuable because the community has an opportunity to keep a pulse on it. And I know we had a conversation at one point, a couple of those new home happy hours in about attendance and, you know, whether or not people were showing up, what we were talking about. And some of those early ones felt more like announcements versus what we really wanted, which was dialogue. Yeah. And it was because we were honestly we were in a point where there weren't really decisions to be made it was just this decision is being made here's what's happening so people could get an update um now that we've gotten into you know kitchen design and making choices about flooring and cabinets and 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 other things like that even uh rewinding the clock a little bit to when we designed the layout of the space itself that's all been more collaborative every time we've opened up that process and invited people into it the goal hasn't been 100 percent buy-in yeah, I think that's, that's an easy mistake to make. It's not to get everyone to participate. It's not even to get the most people to participate. It's to get anyone who wants to participate to feel like they had an opportunity to. Yeah. And that's it. Uh, and, and again, that's a two-way street. For people that are participating, people in the community, whether their thing gets implemented or not, that comes down to you setting, you setting expectations. And I've been careful to do that along the way. I'm soliciting ideas. I'm soliciting questions that you have i'm trying to take a pulse this is not a democratic poll it's not whoever gets the most votes wins it's my job to create experiences where i can listen to people i can get a feel for their reaction to it are they excited about it are they completely ambivalent about it do they care like there are parts of our space that people care about even more than i thought they would the kitchen being a really big one and being able to take the pulse that people really care about that. And it's not so much about implementing everything everybody wants. It's about getting a sense of where people's priorities are and using that to make my own informed decisions. That's how this works. And if I didn't have that information, I would be guessing. I'd be making shit up. I'd be going on what I've seen elsewhere. Even browsing Pinterest becomes dangerous sometimes because I'm looking at what other people have done. Mm -hmm. And I start daydreaming in my head how cool it would be to do that when in reality... I'm just creating an expectation that lets me get disappointed at some point when it's not like that. Yeah. So keeping expectations in check, inviting people into the process, but making sure that they know that this is not about a vote. This is about suggestions, recommendations. One of the most common words out of my mouth was, I hadn't thought about that. I consider that a good thing. Yeah. 
The flip side of that is it also gives me an opportunity to take a pulse of what people are concerned about, what, hesit what they're hesitant about. And an interesting question that I got, we did a, a, a happy hour on this past Friday that was a little more casual, no particular uh, you know, agenda other than to get some people together and walk over to the new space and, and walk around it together. And you know, there's really no substitute for being in it, even when it is not even close to done. It, yeah, of course. Um, and the... One of the questions I got from, from one of our members was, have you heard from anybody who's like not on board? And the most honest answer is no. The more complete answer is I have heard people that have hesitations, have reservations and concerns, but all the ones that I've heard are the same hesitations, reservations and concerns that I have. Sure. And when I hear those, my answer is not, oh, I've got a solution for that. My response is, yeah, I'm worried about that too. I feel you. I feel you. I'm pretty sure we can solve it. Here's some of the things that have been talked about. This is not like, here's how we're going to solve it. Everything is okay. It's more of an invitation to dialogue about, hey, that's a problem that you're not the only one who's worried about. I'd be more worried if nobody was worried about that. I think that's really significant because all of the excitement and hype and work, all of the effort that you're personally putting into this could make it seem like anyone who has any concern whatsoever suddenly appears to be a detractor. Like, I'm in opposition of progress, and I can understand where that perception comes from, but you absolutely cannot play into that. Yeah, absolutely. And people show up with ideas that, you know, and this is, I, I, I have a muscle for this because this is the name of the game in Indie Hall. People show up to us with ideas all the time. Yeah. I want to do XYZ or why don't we have XYZ or this, that, and the other. And, you know, we've got our, our, our Jedi move on one hand, which is that sounds awesome. What can I do to help you do that? But that comes with a prerequisite of does it fall in line with our core values? And, I, and we've got those core values sort of externalized in action on the purpose page of our website, yeah. uh, indiehall.org slash purpose. The things we always do, the things that we never do, the things we do every day, that decision-making matrix is in play every single day here. And so people show up with, with things that they want to do, and I can walk into that very confidently and say, it's not whether or not I like the thing. It's whether or not it fits and right now. So there's a yeah. lot of things that are showing up that people want to do, improvements they want to make that just don't fit on the timeline, mm -hmm. but absolutely merit further discussion and dialogue. So we put them on the Trello board for future discussion and dialogue, and we figure it out down the road. Yeah. So there's a sense of priority that I think when priority is opaque – and people don't understand what the priorities are. And this is true in all kinds of corporations. Companies make decisions. They don't communicate. They may communicate the end decision to the employees, but they don't communicate why the decision was made. That opaqueness or the assumption that other people automatically understand is what rips cultures apart. Mm -hmm. I was listening to the startup podcast. There was an episode about the company Groove Shark that was used to be based out of Tampa, Florida, one of the college towns in Florida, which if you're unfamiliar with, was a very early player in the online music streaming mm -hmm. uh, world. In a lot of ways, they could be considered a competitor to Spotify, but they did some stuff that was kind of potentially, well, let's just say the music industry's lawyers didn't love it. Gotcha. To be fair, the music industry's lawyers don't love a lot of what's going on in streaming, but that's not what we're here to talk about. Yeah. What was interesting was they talked about the early culture at this company and how it was something that their early employees were so bought in on. And over time, as they grew and they sort of grew out of their own control, mm -hmm. decisions started being made that the, it wasn't that the decision was right or wrong. It's that the intent was never communicated or it came from this position of, 
I'm the leader. I know what's best. The buck stops here. Mm-hmm. And I could pull that card. Yeah. I could. I know how terrible the outcome of that would be. And the the goal here is not to be the, you know, I'm in the driver's seat, right? Mm-hmm. But the reason I'm in the driver's seat is because people trust me. Mm-hmm. And the reason people trust me is because I'm clear about my intent consistently. And I don't just explain what things are, explain why they are that way. So when people come to us with ideas, come people come to us and say, hey, if the new space was this way, it would be really awesome. Whether I like it or not, I can say essentially the same thing, which is, yeah, we should write down that idea. I don't think it's going to fit in the immediate timeline because it's not a top priority. Here's what the top priorities look like. If you've got ideas for how to make those top priorities awesome, and here's why those things are top priority. It's a lot of things that are based on basically getting the Maslow's hierarchy of needs squared away and making sure that this house can become a home on the timeline that we've got as efficiently as possible. The least amount of downtime possible and the best understanding of why things are the way they are is my ultimate goal. All right, I hope you learned a whole lot from that process. Like I said, whether you're searching for your first space, whether you are looking for a new home to move into or you're expanding in any way, any time you're going through the process of looking at real estate, it's very easy to be distracted by all of the things you need to think about. And so thinking about how I've approached things hopefully helps you keep your head on your shoulders, which is where we're headed in part two of this conversation. In next week's episode, we're going to be focusing on how we involve the community in this process. That might have been something that stood out to you as missing from this episode. There's a lot of talk about what I did, how I did it. And for all of the talk about community on the Coworking Weekly Show, the community itself was kind of absent from the process. Part two, we're going to be diving deep into how we involve the community in decision making, how we ask questions that get useful results, the difference between asking questions as a poll or a vote towards democracy versus asking questions to take a pulse and get a sense of what people are actually going to want and love and use and a whole lot more. So I hope you come back next week to check out the episode. If you're not already subscribed to the Coworking Weekly Show, now is a great time to do it to make sure you don't miss next week's episode. Also, if you've been enjoying these new episodes, both the short Q&A episodes and these longer form conversations, I'd really love it if you hopped into iTunes and gave us uh, some star ratings and a comment about what you've been learning from the show. That would mean a whole lot to me. I love reading those reviews and it helps other people find the show. So thanks. I hope you have a great week and I will see you next time.